0: Do this audio and then if we feel like a video makes sense later we can do that how's okay. that sound? That um, good. because i don't want to tax you anymore and i have to go to the doctor after a bit too so let's 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 okay. let's play here in this playground and see what it feels like how's that sounds sound?
1: good that sounds good okay. can you hear me okay is my audio all right
0: yeah your audio is fine um so So anyway, tell me about yourself as a teacher and what led you to explore that idea of democratic pedagogy.
1: I guess um, there are probably two reasons. One is that, you know, I definitely had some classroom management issues with students, and I was looking for ways to um, give them some autonomy and student voice because i found that that actually really made me have to put in less effort to be burnt out you know as a teacher especially with middle school Mm -hmm. that um the trick with them was to really allow them to have some more voice in the classroom and then to kind of like lead them to think that they're running the class even though they're doing that within some boundaries that i set up they're making choices within like, uh, you know, select amount of choices, but then they pretty much run the class for me. Um, so I think part of it was that, and the other part is that, you know, I've just never believed in making, you know, raising humans to be obedient and subservient. Like I just don't think that's going to be a good society to live in. Right. Um, I really want to, um, teach students to be creative and to be leaders and to be able to argue respectfully. And I want them to create a better world for us. And so Mm. I think that was always really important for me. Um, I read a book really early on, I think before I even started teaching. Um, I'm trying to remember what the name of it is, but the author also wrote another book called Dumbing Us Down.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> New York Teacher of the Year.
1: John Taylor Gatto. Yeah. Um, and he um wrote another book, I think that was about standardized testing. Um, weapons of mass instruction. So I read that book really early on, like when I was first becoming a teacher. And I think that was really important to me understanding the history of education and how it had been used as a system of control and trying to undo that in some way you know
0: so you had a social justice orientation and a deliberative democratic good that you wanted to have kids experience that this is a big part of democratic educators who want their students to know how to participate in a deliberative democracy would you say that's true for you
1: yes exactly
0: it's interesting too that i almost feel like you think it was a little bit illegitimate that that you had guidance and uh, i would say boundaries around how much freedom they had to direct the classroom You, you know it's like you call it a trick but is it really a trick if you're because uh, because in the past we've had a, either a top down authority or a child run right, but neither of those is actually satisfactory because I really that's what my whole dissertation was around about bouncing between those places, but really what you created is something. That is more of a mixed approach that makes sense for a number of reasons, why did it make sense to you and and added on to that like why is it important for students, do you think to them to have a voice in the classroom
1: well um to answer the first question i don't think that schools should be just like child run Mm.
0: um
1: completely i when i see people do democratic education in that way it strikes me as really lazy Mm. um and very idealistic to the point that it's like pollyannish you know what i mean like there's some people i think they, they come in and they're just like Yeah, let's just give the kids freedom and let them run the class and then they just kind of step back and do nothing and The whole issue is like, you know, I really believe in legacy and passing down what we've learned Obviously we as adults have made a lot of mistakes. We've studied education. We have expertise. We know what we're doing So to just allow the kids to make all the decisions doesn't make any sense like they're gonna make a lot of mistakes the really strong personalities sometimes bullying personalities take over the classroom Mm -hmm. it becomes kind of an unsafe environment and i'm saying all this because i've done it right like i'm not saying i'm saying this because i've made this mistake Mm -hmm. um and they don't know what they're doing they don't know how to run a classroom like it ends up being like lord of the flies right i mean that's that's what that book is about
0: so that book was a lie Oh really <laughs> yes, because the actual situation there I forget the author's name. Um, but uh, if you can recall it, but the actual situation there is there was a team of boys that were stranded on an island and it didn't become Lord of the Flies they actually developed a deliberative democracy and he wouldn't report it out that way.
1: Mm, that's because
0: isn't that interesting and you you bring up an interesting notion too about seeing children in an idealized or vilified way right so the the Puritan, puritanical you know uh, view of the child as a sinner versus the enlightenment view of the child is already preformed idealized human being knowing like neither of those is true.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, I had no idea Lord of the Flies was even based on a real situation.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I
1: I wonder if like, in my experience, like I'm saying, I have had this go really badly when I have backed off too much. But I also wonder because they're not on an island ruling themselves, like I'm still there as an authority figure, they still have to abide by the overall discipline and structure of the school. So they don't really have total autonomy. Um, They
0: also don't have total consequences either. Right. mm -mm, So one of the things that disciplines us and shapes us is the consequences of doing things wrongly. Right. I Think on the real actual Lord of the fly situation where the kids really were stranded. The consequence of not following through or following or bullying or what have you would play out in that situation in a way it doesn't when you actually have an external structure of authority.
1: Right, exactly. So I, what I do now, I'm, I'm a big believer in like, I set the norms for the classroom, I set the schedule, I set the, you know, the, the classroom society basically and like how it's gonna run and then do a gradual release and let the students take over little by little. Um, This has been my, the way I've done things. I do want to say, I think things are different after COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think if we had had this interview before COVID, I'm saying right now, kind of all the things I would have said before COVID. Right. But also (laughs) there's, there's new challenges with COVID as well. And what are those? Well, I'm finding that students having been out for two years, um, and only interacting over the internet and not being really supervised by adults and teachers and being with each other. Um, They are really, uh, just really being very disrespectful to each other and me and really are not like adhering to social norms. Like it's like everybody's attacking each other all the time Mm. and I'm finding that they need more, um, more like modeling in those ways, more calling each other out on those things. Like they can still, they can still do it, you know, like they know, but, um, there's just, there has to be a lot more structure than there was before, because I'm finding that they don't, they haven't developed like those ways of knowing where the lines are
0: so that's interesting so basically what you're telling me is before covid the democratic practices that you engaged in were actually dependent on the traditional system and the norms that the kids had come up through or at least maybe it could have been different but the norms that were established was something that you could lean into and now it's not there in the same way
1: i do think like as much as there's that balance of kids wanting freedom there's also them at the same time, wanting some somebody to know what's going on and some predictability. Because Mm -hmm. what I find that kids are most successful and most comfortable when I turn over things to them, they will always use what I did as a guide, even if I didn't tell them to.
0: I was going to ask that I've noticed that too, that my students will model what I start the classroom culture with, and then tap into that they even
1: a, model stuff that I didn't realize I was doing right. Like they'll <laughs> copy me in all kinds of ways. They do want some sort of structure to follow. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but allowing them to put in some of the content to put in some of the ideas, to guide like their curiosities and those kinds of things. Um, I also, I'm, I'm struggling a bit right now because you know, I've taught the same group of kids for the last three years, um, and in when they were in fifth grade, we definitely were really leaning on democratic practices. Then we went out for COVID and I was teaching once a week over Zoom in like a very highly structured class. Like, I mean, we had to just kind of zip through everything. They barely even got to talk. They would chat to me, which was nice. Like we had that feature. Um, but now that we're back, you know, I kind of feel like they really do have an expectation that they're going to still run things but the way that it's manifested is that they're just like yelling at me about stuff that they think they should get to do that has nothing to do with the class that's like really off you know what i mean and they're just yelling at each other yelling customers at each other like it's just it's gone too far so i really had to do like a reset in my classroom and then come back again and of course i do I I just naturally have the students have voice, but they've lost a lot of that respect that I feel like, and that, um, like you were saying too, being able to lean on that structure of what school typically is, like they still, they've always before just wanted that to continue, but they want to be able to have some more leadership in the class, right? Mm-hmm. Now I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't know if just kids being out for a couple of years, like, I don't know if we're ever going to really get back to what it was before. And also, that's okay. But I'm just not sure where we're going. I, I don't think we should go towards kids just teach themselves. I don't think we should go towards like, you know, teachers aren't involved in shaping and helping them to make good decisions and understand how to be a good citizen um but I don't feel like they're really going back <laughs> willingly to the amount of discipline and structure that we had before you know
0: so what are you doing to try to regain that respect in your classroom
1: so um I tried a lot of things like I tried I as a teacher like I will just honestly talk about my feelings a lot of times like I just I will get really angry and I'll just say how I feel like I'm really angry right now because of this. Um, then, you know, if I feel like I step over the bounds, I'll apologize, you know, but I do talk about how things feel for me. Um, and I have had the students like do a restorative circle. Um, I'm thinking of having students do like a cogent group, um, you know, have a small group to help kind of decide and guide some of the class um but i really had to do just a reset of like everybody working quietly and then talking minimized and then modeling like this would be the polite way to say this you know writing to each other so that I can write back to them but like really helping some of that impulse control of just wanting to like dump feelings on other people, I think has been the challenge. Um, and I think that I do see I do see a big, a big change in having done that, but really having to scale back a lot of the social interaction um, to just like writing and talking minimally and, and modeling and really addressing it when it gets Mean and disrespectful. I mean that the other thing that is you know in our school, and I think it's happening in a lot of schools, is that there's a lot of teachers who have left in the middle of the year. There's a lot of subs in the building on any given day. There's a lot of teachers out for long periods of time, Um, and there's just not a lot of consistency. Like there's a lot of turnover among the adults and you know, I feel like the kids have been out for a couple years, and have been trying to just depend on themselves, and then they're back. And then the adults are just like, you know, transitioning really quickly. And so it's not going,
0: it's not just that the kids experience COVID, but there's kind of a chaos in a school, you had mentioned something earlier about. Um, so kids are dependent on prior social norms, but also you said that kids need to know, they do want, and I noticed this too when I was in the classroom, that they want to know that there's somebody that's policing extremes of behavior and that there's norms that are followed in the classroom. Would you say that's more true, less true, or no difference, say for inner city kids? Because I've heard it said that, you know, the, especially inner city kids often come from chaotic schools with a lot of substitute teachers and just chaos in the classroom. And so they. I've heard a justification for high discipline in those schools that these kids feel better and more secure with structure, what would you say to that.
1: It does seem that way to me for a lot of the kids, I mean I will say the trade off is this. so I feel like most of the kids like having that safety and structure. Um, Do they know much different as far as school goes, I don't know, but for the couple of kids who that doesn't work for it really doesn't work, you know? Like to have that high level of structure and discipline. You know, the couple of kids who are really like very creative, free thinkers, rather impulsive maybe, have strong feelings, want to do things their own way, it really doesn't work, you know? Like it's like then they become like the explosion in the classroom, Um, whereas I think you know, I, I mean, the, I, one of your questions was about how is this an equity issue? I mean, are we going to restrict kids so much that they don't have creativity and freedom and liberty in the classroom and they're really just taught to just follow rules? I mean, i its it's a really big ethical consideration for me because
0: That's a tension, for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said in the beginning, I don't really believe in that. But I also think that affluent kids, kids in affluent schools, I will say, because obviously there's kids on scholarship in those schools, too. But kids in affluent schools have the liberty to kind of explore and make mistakes and have creativity. and, And I find, you know, in those schools, students... Also, sometimes can be very entitled and not want to be told what to do, and the parents don't want you to tell them what to do either, which that becomes its own problem. You know, like, mm-hmm. there's there's such a balance, like you were saying, that it's, like, too much of just doing whatever they want, um, then, yeah, there's, there's just, there's not really enough input by the teacher to be able to make a difference. Um, so what but- I... It- if it's, too, if it's too strict like i i just don't i don't
0: know right that's such an interesting tension that between structure and creativity so for instance even at the university level the kids are coming from pretty affluent places and oftentimes some of those private schools as well when i've enacted an open curriculum or just like a completely open sort of classroom structure and said okay guys we're going to decide our structure the level of social insecurity becomes huge. And it's also a waste of time. And you only have a semester with students. It takes a long time to, to create a structure and, and go through the, all of that. So I found it was a time waster. And I found that it made people feel insecure um, when they didn't know what the social norms were. So that was like the downside of freedom, which is why we had talked before about coming to the point of creating a structure and then beginning to release pieces of that structure as the kids have uh, seen able to handle and eager to handle those kinds of situations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that goes across the board for all different kinds of kids and all different kinds of schools like they pretty much have a feeling of like, I, I want to know what it is I'm supposed to be doing. You know? Yeah, and
0: also, by the way, in my study of the history of open, free schooling systems, a lot of them were deeply uh, abusive of kids. So they offered them one form of uh, freedom, but then abused them in another way, often sexually. So that's all wrapped through there. And uh, so this lack of transparency, there's always rules, there's always expectations, there's always norms, but there's often a lack of transparency of that in like the democratic um, ideologies. Uh, but on the flip side of that, like you said, the creative types are going to be less patient with too too much structure. And um, I also found that so it's my intuition. I could be wrong, but I think that street identified youth, what Yasser Payne calls street identified youth, here are kids who, you know, they're having to function going home walking past junkies and managing young kids at home and no you know nobody's asking them to get a ticket to go to the bathroom like they're they're taking on adult responsibilities and i would think that it would seem obnoxious to kids like that to all of a sudden be put in this almost infantilizing system of of authority as well what do you think about that
1: so i think it's a big this is a big argument i mean my the world that i live in is pretty much educating black children right so i don't want to speak to like all different kinds of kids because it's just not i mean some of it applies obviously but i don't want to say that i understand all kinds of kids but as far as educating black children that's definitely a big argument among people because some people really believe like the kids really need the structure at school um they need to learn how to adhere to norms in education um, norms that they're going to have to adhere to in jobs to be able to um, act in ways that maybe are more restrained or that are more um, you know uh, less independent and those kinds of things in order to get by in the reality of the world they don't necessarily have the freedom to act however they want in society and be treated the same way by a police officer or by someone interviewing them for a job as mm-hmm. an affluent white student would and that's just the reality right i don't, I don't want to go in and be um ignorant of that right so there's like a real fear but then i also think about you know i don't know if you read bettina love's book we want to do more than survive mm-hmm. but you know there's also a lot of people were pushing for more liberatory education. And like you were saying, being able to give students some more autonomy to design um, their curriculum and their norms and the way that they're going to live. I mean, when you talk about kids having responsibility taking care of younger children and walking past a junkie, and I mean, I think we can all agree that these are not experiences children should have to have. It's just Absolutely.
0: But It's, it's just reality, reality of what they're dealing with
1: and the way that they decide to deal with that at home, if they don't necessarily have a lot of influence isn't necessarily going to be the best way. So I think they do need some input from the adults in their lives. I mean, they should potentially all have teachers they can trust and who are there for them, you know, um, and a lot of the kids do have adults at home, even if it's not necessarily a biological parent um
0: who there's good supports there. in the community yeah. often there's there's definitely riches there so I don't want to create sort of this view of, of course only yeah. a jungle but at the same time like my experience of working with uh street identified youth was that I didn't want to take even those bad ways of dealing with things away from them because mm-hmm. that was the survival piece what I wanted to do was bring them into norms other tools other ways of dealing with situations that would be uh, something they could lean into later for jobs for collaboration for creativity right. and 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 by establishing in that pra- those practices in the classroom they did i've actually talked to some of the students that i've taught you know since they've entered into the adult world and they they lean into those practices mm-hmm. so it doesn't become a toolkit for them and i think that's right. incredible
1: And I think the mistake that people make when they come into the classroom when they have an intention to be liberatory is sometimes to just go okay well all of those things are fine just let them do that, and I think that's when. The classroom really degrades I mean we're not setting students up for success, if we think that they can take 100%. um, Things that they've come up with on their own as kids being adultified too early and dealing with trauma, yeah. you know, yeah. as far as living as a street-identified youth, that they're going to take that in and be successful um, in a in a world, a professional world, and in a higher education world. However, I think a lot of times the key lies in just being able to code switch, you know, that they learn how to translate those tools so that those things aren't taken away from them, but they see ways that they were that they that they are smart, that they are resilient, that they were able to handle things, and then they're able to translate that into, yes, I can do this difficult intellectual rigor. Yes, I can understand how to play the part of what I need to do in order to get a job or things like this, they can see the value in it more rather yeah, than having absolutely. to change themselves.
0: Right, that code switching. And also, I think another piece, because I've worked with some grad students who've come out of those environments, and one of the things that can happen is you can think that your trauma and the ways you're responding to trauma, maybe to make the world a better place, it's still kind of a trauma shaping versus getting a chance to see who you are in different settings and what skills and abilities that you have. So not characterizing somebody by their their trauma context and the kinds of coping skills that they've had to achieve there and seeing that there's a whole like a whole nother person there capable of so many more things that that hasn't opened up to them you know one of the things that's been interesting to me was um again working with the street identified youth who have iphones right so now these are Intercity kids who have this powerful technology and access to knowledge that's historically never really been the truth. You know, early on school was the source of information and knowledge and technology, and now they've got it in their hands. But you raise a really important point. Well, in the Silicon Valley is full of creators more than people who work for a corporation, for instance. So there is that creativity entrepreneur piece that is in your kids. And those are the ones that I really think about in this tension trap, like how do we open that up while still teaching them that there are norms that you have to follow in order to bring your creativity to fruition?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's being able to learn to translate those skills. Um, and I used to think about it a lot teaching English, just literally translating, um, you know, translating language, translating vernacular language into school language, um, but I think it also it also applies to social norms um, and even just yeah just culturally like ways of, ways of relating with each other.
0: Well and uh, there's a project called big one of the projects out there called big picture schools and They have kids do projects. Hold on a second, I'm closing my computer here. Um, They have kids uh, present projects, creative projects that they develop at internship sites of their choosing. But there's like gates where they have to pass certain norms of presentation and language and mathematical quantitative, qualitative uh, research and so forth. So I think that's a very, and it's been very successful with the students that I saw up in Rhode Island um, using that approach, for instance. Do you have anything like that in your experience that you've been able to help creative kids sort of um, bring their, uh, their excitement and ideas into fruition at some level?
1: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, What's really good is when you can have some space in the curriculum to be able to have students create their own projects. Mm. And I usually give them some guidelines um, that they have to meet and give them a lot of guidance in creating the project. Um, but I think you, ha- again, have to have a lot of like rubrics, guidelines, checklists, um, and then they can, within that structure, think about what kind of project they want to create. And I do a lot of like one-on-one conferences with them as well yeah. to design what kind of project they want to do. So um, that way students can kind of explore more like what their interests are. They can learn new interests, you know. <laughs> um, and that, I think that that can be a really powerful way within the classroom that you can you can do that. Like just having some some open-ended projects where students can design totally different projects from each other.
0: You talked about in in your in our conversations about this before, about how students integrate, um, you've seen them integrate skills that they've developed outside of the classroom into their projects in the classroom. And uh, do you think that's one of the things that you can see strengths in students and students can see strengths that wouldn't necessarily emerge in it too much of a top-down curriculum.
1: Yeah. And another thing that I like to do is have the students give like an expert presentation. So think of something that they're an expert on, mm-hmm. and then teach the class about that. So, like for example, in one of the ELA standards, some of the ELA standards have to do with presentation skills. So instead of them giving a presentation about whatever I decide they're supposed to give a presentation on. You can meet those standards by having them choose. So I've had a student, you know, give a presentation on fishing. Um, I had a student, student give a presentation on wheelchair basketball, like because he was uh, in a wheelchair and played play basketball. He he had us all like try <laughs> try to make a basket from a chair, and you know he did a whole presentation on that. Um, so students could then be empowered and can share something about themselves. In the classroom, I I've spent a lot of time teaching kids who have been struggling in um, their classes and are close to dropping out, or um, you know, just haven't haven't necessarily gotten good grades in ELA before. Uh, I usually tend to teach those kids, and uh, I think I'm more interested in teaching those kids than like the high level kids. Um, so, yeah, I really find that that can be a real in to become passionate about it and to push themselves to, to learn things about language that they wouldn't have necessarily done because they're trying to express something that's really important to them.
0: That's interesting too, because <clears throat> um, I've seen some hints or threads of this idea Jero was one who talked about it. If the student don't, if students don't see, we have talked about in social justice issues, if they don't see their face in the curriculum, they feel shut out of the classroom. But I'm suspecting that if they don't see their strengths in the classroom, they are also feel shut out and non, like they're not really part of the social participatory happening in the classroom and wall themselves off over time and it also seems like if when they have a voice in the running of the classroom I don't know if that creates more safety or just more of a sense of being somebody constructing that social having some say in the construction of the social setting they're in what do you think have you like what's your intuition on the importance of these aspects to students seeing themselves on the peripheral or even outside like you say almost dropping out to where they come to this different place because yeah. in your data, it's, it's, it's all, almost miraculous. You have this before, after, before, after, like before democratic pedagogy and after, and and the change in the students is just, it made me wanna cry. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that um, kind of like you were saying, but I think, you know, when we were talking about some of those examples you were talking about of taking care of the younger children or, you know, having to witness trauma. I think those are really, like I was saying, unfortunate things the kids should not have to experience. But there's also a lot of things that kids might do outside of school that are really strengths and positive things that we wouldn't even know about. Like, you know, they might help their uncle with building houses on the weekends or something, you know, it's like they they might have some interest or they might like to catch frogs or, you know, just like all these kinds of things that we don't really know about. And I think when they can share some of those things in the classroom uh, because not everybody's strengths are just like reading and writing and having a discussion, but if they can share those other things that are strengths by becoming the teacher, teaching everybody how to do those things. And we all know that like the best way to learn is through teaching. So I think when they can become the teacher and share those things it can help them to also learn those literacy skills um that they need to learn and the the group dynamics
0: researchers such as moll talked about the idea of funds of knowledge and it was more in terms of hispanic kids but the idea that you can bring your knowledge to the classroom and it it becomes added to and a participatory Um, it seems like the classroom space and although we've idealized it oftentimes in democratic education um it is more of a space for kids versus you know what i'm saying like Mm -hmm. sometimes at home or in a job or at church or all these other places kids might go that are more adult-centered schooling does have this interesting component where kids well first of all they outnumber you and uh, they sort of understand that this is supposed to be a space for them so being included in that space and who they are what they want what they care about seems to be a a very, very important issue here that um, un, un, seems to unlock kids' intellectual and social abilities. What if So thinking back to that classroom that you did, maybe say a little bit about that 10th grade experience that you had where the school was falling down around the kids, but the kids were progressing.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me because like you were saying, we talked in November, 2018, but at that point, I didn't really even have an inkling that the school was gonna close. You know we got to like february march april that was a different story i mean there's a period of time when i knew the school was going to close but the kids didn't and then they knew that the school was going to close um my experience with that is interesting so there were there were a couple things like some of the kids would say just kind of offhand well can we just do nothing the rest of the year since the school is going to close and i said No, because you're going to have to go to another school next year, and you you can't go in being behind. Um, A counselor came in really to help kind of the faculty, and he said something that I really leaned on that really helped me a lot. And he said, the best way that you can get the kids through this difficult time is to up the rigor, make it more challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't back off. Uh, And so that's what I did. And you know what was interesting is um, I asked the kids, I surveyed them, and I said, you know, knowing that the school is going to close, what would you like to do for the rest of the year? Knowing that a few of them would say, I want to do nothing. But overwhelmingly, almost all of them said, please keep doing exactly what you're doing. We want class to just keep running exactly the way it's been. And then some of them, like, for example, I had this conversation with a couple of the 10th graders that said, can we just do nothing? And I said, no. And I said, you're actually going to create your own curriculum because, you know, I had done the gradual release up until the end of the semester of um, then allowing them to create a week long unit within that structure that I gave them and with a lot of conferences with me. Um, where they would, you know, teach a lesson, create an assignment, help me grade that assignment that the other kids would do. And they were like, okay, well then, can we do a lesson on Black Klansmen? And I was like, absolutely. (laughs) So, I mean, they really kind of, they got really passionate about that and pushed themselves. And they were like, well, we know it's kind of controversial. And I said, that's okay. I'll send a, a message home to the families. And if anybody has a problem with anyone watching an R-rated movie, I'll have an alternate assignment for them. So while the school was falling down around us, we studied Spike Lee's Black Klansmen and did like, you know, a film analysis that was definitely way above 10th grade level. Um, these kids were really engaged. We did Socratic seminars every day on some discussion questions. The kids ran the Socratic seminars. And, um, you know, that was ended up being really, really good. And then I had another really powerful lesson during that time. Um, some of the 11th graders, they um, wanted to do a week-long lesson on memes. And I found that to be a really powerful lesson because I didn't understand memes at all, okay? So I was like, were well, you gonna have to explain this stuff to me in order to do it? But they had such, they were really good at teaching me about it. And now I understand, like, about how this is a form of communication. Um, they showed us videos to help everybody understand like how a meme starts, how there's like an in group and out, it kind of functions by there being an in group and an out group of people who would understand that meme because of the language that's used. Um, They had the students create memes, and then they graded them, and they rated how well they did, Um, and, you know, talked about a lot of the positives and negatives of it, but I realized, like, here's a form of media and communication that's new that I didn't really understand, but that obviously fits all of the structures of, like, poetry or, you know, whatever other people have made in the past, Um, and so... I thought that was a that was a really really strong lesson like i really i thought that was it really it really enlightened me to understand where communication and literature and literacy is going because it's so intertwined with visuals now and it's so co-creative um and so i all of that happened while the school was closing so like we all knew it was going to close right
0: So interesting. So while other students were running around the hallways and not doing anything, your students were not only were they using your good teaching practices to teach, but you were learning. And surprisingly brought into their reality in ways that I think is very important for a teacher learning from your students, what their reality is like, whatever that is, the tools that they use, what it means for them and so forth, like that ought to be a part of every teacher's experience really. So uh, it's phenomenal I was observed your class and I was blown away by how thoughtful and careful the students were in their discussions and and how they ran the class, and it was nothing like what was happening in the hallway because I came when the school was falling apart. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and
1: they would tell me that we don't do anything in any of our other classes, you know, and um, you know I always had classroom jobs. I had classroom rules, again, that I created, but the the kids ran the structure of the class. I had the kids interview for their jobs. You know, They had to write a resume for themselves. We did one-on-one interviews, and they were very serious about it. They would be like, I think I should be board eraser because I'm very clean, and you should see my room at home. It's very organized and very consistent. I know I'll clean the board every day. <laughs> they were very serious about it when we did their job interviews. So, you know, like I said, I really set up a lot of the structure. I, I, I really believe, I'm going to say, because that year taught me a lot because we had these semester long classes. So there was one group of classes I started with in September and then we finished in December, right? And those classes, I let the kids design the class. The school, the school was like, have the kids write their own norms know their their model was like just too loose i think and it was it wasn't i feel like it was more of an unsafe environment i don't feel like there was as much learning going on there wasn't as much accountability um and in the second semester i started over and i took everything i had learned and i created the classroom structure the rules we went over the rules every day always every day we read them out loud um and i created all the jobs so i really think that this is my belief and you know whatever if anybody wants to argue with it but i think the teacher needs to take their expertise to design the class Mm -hmm. and give the students the ability to run the class and then give them ways to give you feedback about ideas that they want to add or things they want to improve on because they always will they'll be like oh why don't we do this instead you know like even a lot of times with that class I would be like okay everybody copy this sound, and they would be like can we just take a picture of it and i'm like oh huh, yeah let's just do that <laughs> like there were lots of things where they would come up with ways to be like why don't we just do this um but i don't think they should design it from scratch i just don't think that works
0: so you have two things going on there pedagogical authority well you have curricular authority right so you have knowledge in your content fields not all knowledge but Definitely more than a broader range of knowledge than the kids have, although they have some knowledge, for instance, in terms of memes. But this okay. pedagogical authority, like you know how you've experienced how a well-run classroom that supports students' learning should run, and um, yeah, it's interesting because with my college class, I said a similar thing. I was like, "You can talk to me about how you might want to change things in the classroom, but I may not agree. I may I may ask you to wait a while." before and then have you evaluate again, because I have the last, I have the final say here. So even though I run an what I call an open curriculum, I have the final say because I have pedagogical authority because we have a short time span to learn in. And <clears throat> because some of their decisions are made out of the, I wouldn't say laziness, but it's more like efficiency. You've got students in, in high school or college who have multiple courses that they're taking and they don't want to do any extra work that they don't need to they don't want to do busy work and that's completely understandable they want to be efficient so i'll say i'm i what it made me think through is i am not giving you anything to do here that doesn't have value for you so um one of the things i require is that they they participate in discussion posts at like four different posts right and i'll say if you if you voted only for one, I've noticed that the discussions don't become deep enough if there's just one discussion post. So we can maybe argue later about the four, but I want you to give a trial period here. So, you know, it's it's I think it takes greater leadership, not less leadership. It's easy to be an authoritarian teacher, right? The cost of being an authoritarian teacher is that you lose trust with students. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to evoke their creativity and their thought and their risk taking, while also being authoritarian, to me those things are in tension with each other. But at the same time, to know where to draw a line, when to shift the line. Um, when to allow students to have, so I think it's important for students to voice that they don't like their your line, giving them the freedom to dislike what you insist on holding, I think is part of I don't know if you've experienced that, but I believe it's part of um, creating trust in the classroom where they feel that they can say what they don't like, Mm -hmm. even even though you say well i'm going to argue that i'm going to keep that line for now. I even will say sometimes I don't know why I can't articulate why but intuitively I feel that's important so for now that's not going to change.
1: yeah I think that makes sense, Um, and I do think one thing that's on my mind is that it's really important that you establish authority with the students first, that that's really fully established before, you know, as, as you're releasing that control to them, because-
0: So what kind of authority are you speaking of there?
1: I That I actually do know how the class should be run and that I can step in at any point and take, take over to put us back on track. Um, and that I will give consequences for people who are, disrupting or, or disrupting the safety of the classroom or the learning environment in the classroom.
0: So you're willing to police, which is important. I think. Yeah.
1: I find that that's a really key part because I think the kids only feel that safety and trust knowing that if things go off the rails, that I'm going to step in, you know, and that's the thing is no matter how far we go as in being a democratic classroom. The kids know that at any point if I step in and say, okay, you know, now you need to listen to me for a minute, that, that I will do that and that they, they trust that I do know what I'm doing and that I'm going to be fair. I do, and I do listen to them about what they have to say about it, it's just also have to learn how to express that to me. I don't listen to them if they're yelling back and forth at me in the middle of class. I don't listen to them if they're talking to me disrespectfully. I always just say, we're going to talk about this at the end of class, respectfully, after you calm down. I need you to, or you can write it down to me. And I always do listen to them in that context. But they also have to know what the lines are. I just think if you don't establish that authority first, and you're like, you just wishy-washy. Like, Let's just let you guys run everything. like there's not really a safety to feel creative in that environment. Because like I said, I think the really strong personalities, then just take over.
0: You just said an interesting thing, safety for creativity, so mm-hmm. not in opposition to creativity, but actually to support it. It's interesting, because when I was teaching my fourth graders, they wanted to introduce uh, computer programming into our curriculum. So something I knew nothing about. And uh, it was the same thing. I was like, well, how are we going to, um, what are the rules are we gonna create around people writing uh, programs in the classroom versus people just using it for gaming? Which I don't, you know, and they were like, well, we're here to learn not to game. So we want you to step in. So they actually, as part of their structure for that, put me in there as the policeman to hold the rules and to call somebody out and, administer the punishment which we always revisit right. you know we, we always pilot something to let's see how it works and then how we can tweak it right
1: yeah and i find that too as much as the kids might want input and might want to run the class they don't actually want to give each other consequences and hold each other accountable because i think there's a social cost there they yeah. really do want me to do that you know and i think it really matters to all of them that i do that
0: it's interesting Um, so I wonder what your thoughts are kind of shifting a little bit, but so oftentimes you have a classroom, whether it's a science classroom or English language, where we're asking risk-taking and uh, collaboration and talking and dialoguing and all these things. And then that's juxtaposed with a classroom management style. That's very top-down authority. right? It seems to me that democratic pedagogy allowed you to integrate so that those systems were closer to each other, founded, but like what you did in classroom management also matched the sorts of things you were doing curricularly. Can you say that word? Uh, which also enhanced or transferred back to classroom management. What do you what could you say about that idea?
1: Yeah. Um I, I think that there are some, simil- I think the way that I do them is similar, like, you know, I do have the expertise, and I know what you need to learn, and I know the standards, but I can share that with you, and then we can talk about parts of it that you can have input and tweak, right, like exactly which of these things do we study in order to meet these standards, um, which song do we sing, which book do we read, um, exactly how do we to do the, like the creative parts of it, right? Um, but I still know whether or not we're meeting the standard. And that and we can dialogue about that. They can be like, well, how about this? Okay, well, that's not really on grade level. How about we try this instead and kind of push yourselves? And then they get better at understanding what the overall goal is. I also think that's good for teachers to have really focus on standards um, and like what we're, even if you're not focusing on the standards, standards like like the ones like the state if you have a problem with like state or national standards but you have to have some standards right that you're trying to get the kids to meet um but basically that they it's then not just like the teacher's telling you to do this but it's like no there's this line that we're trying to get to you know it's like we're pole vaulting or something we're like trying to get over this bar and then we're we're together we're working in teamwork i really know where the bar is i know the techniques to get over it And we're going to work together to get you over it. Um, And I think the classroom management the same way. Like I pretty much know how what what the main things are that we need in order for this class to run well. But for this particular group of people, give me input about you know the things, the ways that you want to contribute and the things that you want to be able to do. And
0: um, And did you find the language? So when you were talking about how we're going to handle. The need for pencil sharpening in our class right that whole dialogue created skills in students to think about things and to listen that then transferred to the content of the curriculum you're trying to teach and the way you were teaching the curriculum you brought back into okay let's discuss you know what's the purpose what's the standard what are the opinions around this classroom management issue it seems to me like it's kind of a they enhance each other
1: Yeah. I mean I think when you have that kind of dialogue and you have a way for the you know, students to talk to each other about those things as well. you have that structure in place.
0: The other thing I was thinking about too is like open science ed right now is all the thing in, in Delaware. It's based on so it's something I'm teaching to college students, but it's based on this idea of creating models. of of a phenomenon what's happening and then as you get more conceptual understanding revising your model right. So to me watching my as a field instructor watching my students in the classroom, this is heavy cognitive work for a teacher, like you are really thinking through what kids are saying. But if there's also a lot of chaotic classroom management issues going on, I think it's a it's a tool for burnout. Uh, for teachers. So I was in one classroom where the classroom management was not really being followed by students. So they were getting up and down and sharpening pencils and going to the bathroom and looking on their phones all through the lesson. And in another classroom, there was literally four adults in the classroom policing students. Mm -hmm. And that had a, I think, a negative effect on the freedom Mm -hmm. that students felt to talk.
1: the two extremes right um and i i do think the you know and that's something we have the el education model at coomba and they have that classroom management and curriculum are really intertwined as far as when we're coaching teachers um i do think they're really intertwined you can't do all this stuff without classroom management and i also you know as students are bringing their own selves and their own creativity and all that but also you look at child psychology for the most part kids don't really think of how their actions affect others yet they have to learn that right. from like consequences right so either consequences of social consequences of someone calling them out or they feel guilt because of something that they did or they have a teacher imposed consequence um If you don't enforce enough of that, you know, there are going to be kids are just all so inconsiderate of each other, you know, not necessarily they're trying to be mean but they're just not thinking of that the fact that they're getting up and sharpening their pencil a bunch of times at different times is, then people can't hear each other talking right they're just not thinking about that.
0: And that's a perfect example because kids I would say that they're self referenced and when you just make a rule that doesn't change their self-referenced orientation when you discuss pencil sharpening and you hear your peers say that's so irritating that gives that student that perspective on how their actions are affecting other people and to me that's why it's so powerful that discussion right there you know you don't go sharpen, you don't stop sharpening your pencil because you're afraid of your teacher or their authority or they said so or what have you a lot of kids just don't care don't think about it it's not enough pressure but what their peers think um and how their behavior affects others that is a deeply important to all of us as human beings and i have seen that worked out and from young students to much older students on um, how effective that is so i think that's a big reason why this discussion is important and not the way it's done in uh some of the models that i've seen where you set up classroom rules with students but basically you have a set of rules that you want the kids to um, uh, set up, but when the, and when the students get there, you're like, yes, and then you put it on the board, right? But that only happens at the beginning of the year. It's not this ongoing discussion of how people's behavior actually interacts with what you decide.
1: I don't believe in that. I have gone to a lot of schools where at the beginning of the year, the expectation they give to teachers is On the first day of school, all the kids should write down what they think the class norms should be on a piece of butcher paper, and then you hang it up on the wall, and those are your class norms. And they do that one time at the beginning of the year. I just, I don't believe in that at all. I think, first of all, it's lazy. I think, second of all, it sets this kind of tone at the beginning. I really find that I need to be very clear with students about what my classroom is going to be like right in the beginning, you know? And then... Let them have their feelings about it later and they can tell me later and we can make adjustments, right? But then, you know, we have an if we have an ongoing discussion where, let's say six weeks in, we look at, okay, here's the rules we've been following the last six weeks. Because the issue is sometimes there's kids who are just breaking rules for other reasons. It has nothing to do with the rule itself. They're trying to communicate something to you. They're trying to communicate something to their peers. Um, and I think when you give kids the message that everything's totally under their control and they can decide everything, they don't necessarily work together well. They're upset about everything. Um, you know, they they're arguing with each other. like I think it, you doesn't, have to, it does I don't just don't think it's successful.
0: yeah, it doesn't actually. It's kind of like setting rules when the first time you have a coffee date with somebody, and this is how mm-hmm. it's going to be. First of all, you don't even know how you are together, right, you don't know how what might emerge. And it also is a little off putting to be policing a space before there's actually a reason to talk about it.
1: Yeah, another thing it's a big cognitive load for the students on the first day when they're thinking about. Does my hair look okay? Is my friend going to be in my class? You know, like, I feel like that's a a lot of, and, you know, I also struggle with, I do think kids who are street-identified kids get adultified too much already, you know, and then they get adultified within the classroom as well. They get harsher punishments. They get real serious charges, you know, adult punishments for things that kids in a more affluent school get just kind of a slap on the wrist for. I just don't think we need to continue adultifying students. I think they have to have some areas of their lives where adults are just like, we got it. This is what's happening. You know, like, you can just be a kid, live your life and come to school and you know what you're going to do and you know what the expectations are. And then after we're six, eight, 10 weeks into school, let's see how it's going. And let's, I want to hear your input and what are your creative ideas and how do you want to be part of this class and what do you want to study you know
0: when i've I've talked to teacher candidates about rule setting they're very punitive and they're very objectifying of students and i've asked them to use what we use in science methods which is okay this phenomenon is happening in this case the social one what do you imagine is having, happening before during and after this phenomenon right. So if a student comes in late, you know their view is that students disrespectful and lazy, but maybe that student has poor access to transportation that makes getting on time impossible for them right. But there's no investigation into what's going on and then how to mitigate the situation when the student has to come in late, how can they come in late in a way that's least disruptive. And how can we as a classroom understand what's going on for that person? So there's that social piece, too.
1: I also think on the other end, it's also a problem for the teachers who are like, oh, well, they can just come in late all the time and whatever, because I don't know what that kid has going on in their life. They pr- there's also sometimes a stereotyping of assuming that kids have a bunch of stuff going on, where if you call the parent and the parent might go, I'm putting that child on the bus at the right time every day. What do you mean he's there late? Like. We need to also hold kids accountable and make them understand that they can't show up at a job late. So right. I think there has to be some communication, um, you know, with with the family and with the, the child. Um, and there has to be some sort of working it out like, OK, you can't get here at this time, but then you need to make up these minutes by doing something else. You know, like they still have to hold some sort of line.
0: Right. And there's a there's a can be some character issues that student needs to work on, like the fact that they don't pay attention to time. Well, what can they do to better prepare? And you don't have any of those conversations if you only have a punitive rules-oriented orientation. Mm
1: -hmm. It takes a lot more work to have the conversations and all of that. Um, you know, I and I sometimes I've made assumptions about kids and then I call home and I realized that I made an assumption that was not correct. You know, I make stereotypical assumptions about kids.
0: I've absolutely done that. And my implicit biases kicked in. I mean, there's so many ways that I've just had kids wrong, and learned the hard way that it's really, really important to talk to students. Uh, to give an example, there was one student who, every time I told him to do something, he reacted negatively, and he and I had a great relationship the rest of the time, and I was completely confused by his behavior, so I was like, and later I learned that his father died when he was very young, so I don't know how that factored in for him, but he said, for him, when I gave him a command, you know, something to do, a transition in the classroom, he just immediately felt this sense of resistance. Hmm. So, so I said, well, what can we do about that? Because I feel disrespected by you in front of everybody when you act out like that. And that lowers my credibility and authority as a teacher. And that's bad for students who are trying to learn from me. Hmm. So we developed a hand signal. He knew I something would, and it was so easy after that. It was crazy, but all it took was a converse, an authentic conversation with the student, also not hiding my feelings as a human teacher and my role as a teacher, like you talked about, right? Um, and just finding out a solution that could work in that situation it's so surprising but yeah it is. There's not enough time accorded I think part of the pressure that teachers are under is the the. Um, it's this idea of constantly dumping curriculum in kids heads on a certain time schedule. Yeah, and not allowing time for these kind of conversations which are so important to their both their character character development and their agency for their own learning.
1: Yeah, I struggle with that too, and I'm I'm now teaching a school for the first time that has a curriculum, you know, that we're supposed to teach with like a pacing calendar and timing every day. And I've always believed that depth is better than breadth, you know, like really going deep into something and exploring it and pushing yourself, that you can then apply those. Because you can never learn everything. And so it's like, but if you can apply those skills of going deep cognitively, then you can apply that to anything else that you're interested in later. I found the same. So I just really believe in that. Um, And I think that when we're trying to get through too much breadth, we don't get enough depth and we have to just like push the kids along constantly. Like they can't go on their own motor of, of learning these things. And I just don't I don't really know if that's efficient in learning you know? their
0: deeper questions don't drive their inquiry.
1: Yeah,
0: Um. they don't develop the meaning making connections right. that make that relevant. So I homeschooled my kids, as you know, for 20 odd years, and that's what I came to for my own kids, because I wasn't under the gun from any curriculum that it was far better to what I call dig post holes rather than string fencing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, if you don't have post holes, you can't string fence between it. So um, taking it to really develop depth seems incredibly important. Um, and the other, I want to go back to a point you made though about um, bringing your curricular authority to the students and your. Knowledge of how to present and create that, and then opening up spaces. When I was um, doing my dissertation, I went to two open democratic schools, and one of the things the students did not like was having to create their own curriculum because, as one of them said, then it becomes your baby, mm-hmm. and it's adult. It's adultifying in the sense that they couldn't just go sample or learn from somebody else's effort; they had to. You know, go petition for money, go buy the stuff, set up the curriculum, do the whole thing, and it was just so much. And when I've asked kids um, over the years, I often ask them, if school was perfect for you, like, imagine an art room, that's always a nice place to go, like, what would you want for that? And very often they would like a prepared environment where there's models and there's some teaching and then there's some freedom to choose from amongst the model and bring themselves to it which seems to me like a good metaphor for many subject areas
1: yeah i mean i just think if you think about the purpose of teaching in human um you know if we think about it in like human evolution right the whole idea is that we don't live very long right? We live until we're 80, 90 years old, whatever. We accrue whatever knowledge we can. And then we pass that on to the next generation and that generation takes a mix of, you know, what the the previous generation had and they build on that and then they teach it to the next generation. And the only way that we can evolve as humans is by taking on what people have learned before us. If we all started from scratch every time, We wouldn't get anywhere, you know, and if we look at things like, um, you know, I was just listening to a podcast about the Maori traditions in in New Zealand and the the history there and like how they, you know, would pass on the storytellers of the the, um, people would pass on like all these hundreds of years of oral history, right? And that would be their job to memorize that and teach that to the next generation. Of course, then they'd have to add on whatever happened in their generation and the stories and the lessons and everything and pass on ways of catching fish and hunting and uh, warfare and and all those things that, that they would need to learn how to do and building ships, right? you know you wouldn't you just wouldn't get very far if everybody had to just start over so i just i don't believe it makes any sense to have kids just completely start over from scratch without us teaching them anything like i think what makes sense is for us to give them the models what we've learned but then also just realize that everything is evolving and that my way is not necessarily right it's not necessarily the only way and that the kids also have something to add and to teach me and to take this clay that I'm giving them and mold it a little bit differently you know like maybe we're still making kind of the same thing but they've made a bit of an improvement I mean that's the whole idea is that I teach them the thing that I know and then they're able to be creative and innovative and improve upon it not that it's just that they have to do it from scratch because that would take them forever making a million mistakes that they don't have to make if I just help them get there you
0: know and we seem very wired autonomy agency creativity you know things self-determination theory we seem very wired to want to take that bit of cultural clay that's handed to us and bring something to it that seems to be very intrinsically human thing but I think that in the enlightenment enlightenment period that intrinsic notion was seen as an individual quality, apart from culture, apart from other humans. And so two fallacies, in the typical idealized notion of free schooling or unschooling or democratic education is that you somehow come with this blank slate and bring whatever, and that you do it as an individual. But as you pointed out, the bullies in the classroom could take over the curriculum, somebody ends up deciding and in reality, we we get engaged in learning something because other people are doing it, right? You want to skateboard because you see people skateboarding. You want to, uh, it doesn't just necessarily pop out of the amorphous center of you that something that you're going to do, right? It's, it's something about the human experience. So the idea of you bringing curriculum to the table as a group experience for the classroom also seems to be part of the human experience, but more we see this morning, this indigenous community, right, that where the the community mindset versus an individualized approach to life, enlightenment approach to life, makes a lot more sense in how human beings do prefer to interact with each other and be together. So that's, um, That's what I think one of the great things that's been needed what advice, then would you give to somebody who was like I really am excited at this idea and this orientation, I want to try some of this in my classroom. You know i've got this new group of kids coming in in September, how would you tell a teacher to set up to do this.
1: Well, I do this all the time, because you know at my school I try to coach other teachers in this so basically I. I tell teachers to be very clear with themselves about what the class norms are, the schedule, the way that they're gonna do the curriculum, and then be very transparent with the kids from the beginning. You know, on Mondays we do this, this is why. On Tuesdays we do this, this is why. These are all of the things that we need to happen in order to make the class run. Um, And then after you have that established, I'd say after like six weeks, Um, then you start doing, I mean, and actually it's funny. I say that, but I also did this in summer school where we didn't have that much time. Mm. So I really set it up for like two weeks and Mm. then I started doing classroom jobs. Um, and you know, one of the classroom jobs is like curriculum designer, you know, Mm. like that you get to work with me on what projects we're going to do that week. And so I allow kids to self-select, um, you know, and would I would pick who would get to pick the jobs first every week um, based on how they were performing in class. And then every week they got to switch jobs. So they got to try out different jobs, you know. Um, and then have, have places in your class where the students get to run the class. So, like, for example, I have at the beginning of my class, we have a, a class pledge. I wrote it, but one of the kids will lead it every day, you know. Um, Then we have warm-ups that I teach them how to do and then the kids lead the warm-ups, right? Um, And then, you know, different things, discussion leader or somebody who is note taker or, you know, things like that. You start releasing it in those ways I think with classroom jobs and you have things built into your class that you've shown the kids. I say one of the biggest things is consistency that you figure out what you're doing and then you're consistent every week and you show them, this is how I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. And then when you turn it over to them, they've seen you do it a million times. Mm -hmm. And so they'll have a model to follow. And the kids who are, you know, adventurous and creative. I also am a big believer as a creative person that boredom is the great um, driver of creativity. So basically if you do the same thing consistently week after week after week, eventually the kids will get bored of that and that will push their creativity to think of a different way to do it. Mm. But if you don't have consistency, so if the teacher shows up and they're like frazzled and they don't do the same routine every day and they're not really transparent with the kids about what's happening, they can't turn that class over to the kids. 'cause it's already chaotic. And the kids feel chaotic. They don't feel safe running class. They want somebody to like create order, you know. And I think that's a recipe for disaster. I think you that's have really- to really I always tell young young teachers too, like it's okay if it's not the perfect thing. Just decide something and stick with it. You know, just stick with that thing consistently and then let it evolve. Because I've definitely done that where like um, you know, I've done stuff and a year later, I'm like, you know, that wasn't a great idea, right. but then I just kind of start over maybe the next year, or sometimes you can do a fresh start like in January, even with right, the same group right, 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 Um, but I think without that being like, I'm going to stick with this, it really feels unsafe to the kids. It feels like you don't, your wishy-washy you don't really know. Um, I think you just have to stick with it. And that might sound authoritarian, but I'm saying stick with it, but then also let the kids respectfully say why they don't think that's working and be willing to change it, but not just drop it every other day just because you don't feel like it or you're like, I don't know. know.
0: That is a couple of really amazing points right there. First of all, that idea of being wishy-washy, that is the problem. It can be the problem with democratic education. It can make you get a real pushback from kids because they don't feel safe or students. And so I love that. I also love your idea of consistency leading to boredom because um, a lot of times teachers are told to keep the kids moving. So the kids are constantly changing and doing things and they never get to settle into anything uh, because it's a way to keep them occupied and off center so they can't disobey, but they also can't dig in and learn. Right. Um, And at the same time, allowing that consistency to then, well, the, the classroom jobs piece is, First level of genius here because I'm what I see there is you're giving kids responsibility, which then gives them accountability to each other, but then opens the door for agency where they get to bring their own ideas to again taking that consistency but tweaking it to make it deeper, more interesting, a little bit changed, but still part of the pattern and expectation of what that social environment will have for the students. So, uh I love the idea that you have some of them helping you create the curriculum like that we think of classroom jobs as like banging the erasers or. Um, but not some of these more creative things that you've had, can you rattle off some of the more curricular related jobs that you've had students do.
1: Well, I mean I you know, sometimes kids like don't really know what to do with that and then i've had some like in the summer, I had a kid who wanted to always do that. And he'd come up at the end of every class with a paper of all the ideas he had written down about things that he thought we should do in class. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think that kids will come up with different projects that they want to do. And I think the greatest thing about this is that they will talk about things that they liked doing in other people's classes.
0: And for
1: most teachers, most teachers don't get to see other people's classes right right and so i think that that's really valuable because they'll bring the best of the teaching from the other teachers to you and say hey can we do this in your class
0: i've noticed that too i've had that feedback from students and it's it's fantastic
1: yeah it's a really way a good way to collaborate even when you and then you can always go and talk to the other teacher and see what they did and Um, but you know, I've had students say, can we, can we do grading the way this other teacher does it? You know, can we start class in this way? Um, you know, just all the, all these kinds of ways, different ways of doing projects. And then sometimes there's also topics that they might want to study. I had my students, my 12th grade students one time say, you know, I was like, a lot of times you guys don't really get to learn things that you might want to be able to do as an adult. So seniors, you know, usually are checked out at the end of the year. So I was like, why don't we take the last couple weeks of class and you just bring to me, like, these are all the things I want to be able to learn as an adult. Right. Mm. So we went out one day and I had them change the tires on my car. <laughs> <laughs> Cause they wanted to learn how to change a tire. Mm. So I made them do research and a presentation on how to change a tire so that they would like, learn how to do it and then we just went out into the parking lot and i had to change the tires on my car
0: (laughs) no accidents i um, i'm assuming after no
1: everything was i mean i supervised a lot obviously um but you know they wanted to learn how to like make a budget or what's with taxes like how you pay taxes or Um, just cooking a simple meal for themselves or something. And so I did make them do the legwork of researching it, finding videos, presenting, becoming the teacher. But then, you know, I also gave them some guidance as the adult. Uh, And it was a really good way for the seniors to not be totally checked out at the end of the year. They're still meeting presentation standards. They're still meeting research standards.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And, you know, they were able to contribute to the topics they really wanted to learn about, you know.
0: So, so great. Um, Did you find that your students were talking about your class or the class rules or the way you did things outside of class? Did you hear tell of that?
1: Yeah, or? yeah, sometimes other teachers will tell me that the kids will tell them that we do that. Um, So, yeah, and that they've asked them the same way that I've heard them ask me to do things that they do in other people's classes.
0: I found with my students that they discuss what happens in class a lot more when I've taught in this way um so they would have long debates on the bus going home or what have you and it to me that's an indicator of good teaching because it's it's not it's with the person and they want to explore it in a greater way with amongst their friends they want to talk about it. they want to articulate their ideas and um for wrongly or rightly i always took that as an indicator that i was heading in the right direction with what i was doing yeah so well Thank you for giving me this time out of your very, very busy schedule. We could talk forever on this topic. Yeah, I'm sure we will. We will, but like, I'm just so excited because I think that you've raised the major issues and concerns and reasons for why I'm calling this democratic pedagogy and not democratic education Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and why it falls within the jurisdiction of the state, the school, the teacher, and it's not a free-for-all for kids and that that's actually a good thing. So, um.
1: yeah, thank you. I think this conversation has really helped reignite my passion for that because, like I said, things have looked different after COVID, and mm-hmm. I think this has presented a lot of new challenges for us. Some of it is not even within the kids' control. Like I was saying, some of it is just the more unpredictable environment of the school, of adults being out so much and then mm-hmm. not being really consistent. Um, so, I think you know, this has this has helped me to reignite my passion because I do feel like I can't really do things the way I did it before and I have to keep redesigning it and I'm tired. <laughs> so like it helps to reinvigorate me and thinking about how to move forward.
0: It's cool. I'll be interested to hear what you come up with and your thoughts at the end of the year when um, you've had a chance to reflect on this particular year more it's very important yeah i
1: think it's helpful having this conversation because i really did realize how much um you know having that authority and respect from the students and everything in the beginning is really important i think i was a little more lenient with them in the beginning of the year because i knew they were coming back from covid and i was trying to um be
0: sensitive
1: be really sensitive to that but then i think what happened is that you know they they took it as like we're gonna take over now and the whole reason we have classroom management is because there's more of kids than there are of us and they do have their own culture and social norms and everything without you that they would have on the playground um and that we do have to have some authority without allowing them to run over us you know so i had i really had to just take a step back recently And I've really mixed feelings about it, but I just really had to take a step back to like really exercise my authority to the point where like they now see like this is this is the other option so that they understand when we go back to the classroom because I told them after spring break, we're going to go back to having normal class, but so that they see like, you know, if you're not within the bounds of what I've set up for you in this democratic classroom. If you can't do that safely and responsibly, the other option is this that we we you sit and do worksheets quietly and aren't allowed to make a single mistake. I feel like they needed that reality check because they've had so much independence, like too much, too, you know, too little regulation, too little structure for so for the last couple of years. Yeah. I felt like they needed this like reality check to the other side and their feelings were hurt. Their feelings were really hurt. I could see in their eyes, their feelings are really hurt by me doing this. And so I'm just really gradually explaining to them like why we did that. Reset, and now we're going to loosen back up again, you know, so I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs>
0: uh, that This brings up two thoughts. But me. I
1: felt like I'm, I'm being very contrary to my, I felt like I was my... very contrary to my, ethics when I did that, but I felt
0: like I had to that brings up two issues for me, though. One is this issue of authority, there's mm-hmm. authority that just dominates and doesn't allow people to be their own agents for their own learning yeah. of life and so forth. And there's authority that serves. Mm-hmm. And I think very often our school, my school models was authority that dominated, not yeah. authority that served. we have few models of authority that serves those purposes. And so I think when you can shift the language into authority that serves you see that bringing them all the way back isn't to take over their lives but to to do this reset right yes and um, i had a situation like that when i was teaching secondary science and i had a pretty free-for-all classroom so there were rules but i would tend to set up four labs at once and i let students play around with the labs and because, and I had a purpose for it, a lot of them came from schools that were so chaotic, they were never allowed to even hold a ruler. They did not even know how to use a ruler. These were ninth graders in physical science. It was appalling. So I I know that human beings need to play with something before they learn to use it accurately. So you see a toddler, they're gonna to mess around with something, and then over time you develop the expertise to use it well. But th- that playful stage is something we don't, tend to allow in schools and we tend to bracket that out, right? But I felt it was important that they went through that and I think that my intuition was correct. But my principal came in and he saw chaos. And so he read me the riot act and as a single mom, I was like, well, I can't afford to lose this job. So I then instituted the strictness and rules and the student flooded my sink. They flooded my lab sink. So I thought about that as pushback from the students. And I went to them and I said, I need to apologize to you because I think that when you flooded my sink, you were telling me that you were really upset with me, that I, you had this level of freedom and then I took it all away. Yeah. And so then I was able to have that discussion with them about, um, I said, I wanna bring us back towards more freedom, but a little bit less than what we had and here's why. And I need you to protect me because I need to be in this role so I can feed my family. And at the same time, I'm very committed to you using the tools of science well, but taking that time to roll into learning how to use them well. So anyway, that, you know, that's two pieces there where we use authority, either in the wrong way, and we bracket that place where kids need to experiment so far out of the classroom that actually that piece of learning doesn't often get to happen for kids, especially the kids we view as bad, right? Which this class was all primarily street identified youth. So what that principal wanted to see was kids sitting in desks with their hands folded, being quiet, while I made them copy off of a PowerPoint. <laughs> you can identify. So yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Well, well yeah, I'll, thank you. I'll let you know how this goes. <laughs> we am making it up as we go along.
0: Yeah. Well, of course we are. We always are. Um, Yeah, I would really like to do a follow up discussion and see how this return to authority and then how you you're thinking about that process and what what reveals itself in the rest of this school year for you. Yeah,
1: and I will say that's my seventh and eighth grade experience. My fifth and sixth grade class has been completely different. I mean, I think they were a different age group when they were out during COVID. They have um, and they're a different age group coming back. Right. I mean, that class has soared this year. I mean, it has really taken off. Um, And there's a lot of student leadership. I mean, there's, I'd have zero behavioral issues. One person will start talking in the middle of class and they'll all look at them and be like, be quiet. We're trying to learn, you know? So it's like, (laughs) that's a whole different story. And I have some students who are consistently getting in trouble in other classes who do really well in my class. I feel very proud of that, you know? Um, and that they they really self correct. They take leadership. They have creativity and all of that. Um, so I feel like sometimes I'm concentrating a little too much on the negative, but I have a real positive story there too as well. So That's
0: funny. So that would mean that the kids that were like in third grade when COVID hit probably had parents that were like sit down by the computer and listen and be quiet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas the kids who were old enough for the kids for their parents to go to work were sort of left to themselves.
1: That might be the case. I don't know. Um, I also think seventh grade is typically a time to rebel on autonomy, and they didn't have the consistency of being with me the last couple of years and having that to rebel against. So they've just kind of gone off the rails. You know, the fifth and sixth grade still really want to follow Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And do a yes. good job and everything. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, it's interesting with the college students. So I have the freshman class that spent the last two years of high school in COVID, mm-hmm. right?
1: Right.
0: And so it took a while to get down to talk in class. We still have to wear masks in class, of mm-hmm. course, but uh, there just seemed to be a lot more social distance and awkwardness. Yeah. Than- I use jam boards and we did things when we finally got people really participating. And they tell me, we love your class because in other classes we take notes and then we go home and think about it. In your class, we take notes and think about it while we're there um which i think right there that piece of uh dialogue Mm -hmm. even outside of the rules in class is an orientation that's a whole nother thing but um i had to go on zoom because of this operation for a week and they completely flipped over to barely any part it was crazy and i asked one of the students what happened like was it the way i ran the class it didn't seem any different why weren't people participating and she said i think we just all kicked back into our covid um, behavior. Yeah,
1: that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, well, I think
1: Jeremy and I are going to drive down to the beach this afternoon.
0: Yay. We'll say hi to mm-hmm. him. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this very interesting interview. It's been fascinating, amazing. Awesome.
1: Thank you for asking me.
0: You're the most intuitive teacher I know. So um, your insights are really, really valuable. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Okay. All right.